Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins with the message, The Promise. All right. Well, within the pages of the scriptures, there's literally hundreds of divine promises that God has made to man. Now, one of the greatest promises that God ever made to any man was the promise that he made to King David. Around 1000 BC, God made a promise to David, and the promise was so great, and it is so great, that the fulfillment of this promise will literally impact every single believer who's ever lived since the beginning of time. And by the way, the fulfillment of that promise that God made to David is what Christmas is all about. And so the promise is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let me give you a little background before we dive into reading the chapter. And so in 2 Samuel 7, as we come to that portion of the scripture, once again, it's around 1000 BC. David, King David, is sitting on the throne of the United Kingdom of Israel and Judah, and it's a time of great peace and prosperity. So after many, many years of heartache and turmoil, God finally gave David rest from all his enemies. It's a time of peace. It's a time of calm. It's a time of quiet. Now, I don't know about you, but in times of peace and calm and quiet, I like to reflect on how good God has been in my life. And that's exactly what David was doing as he sat upon the throne of Israel and Judah. He began to think about, man, how good has God been to me? And I'm sure he's thinking thoughts like, I used to be just this mere little shepherd boy. But over the years, God has so shown up in my life and he enabled me to kill the Goliath, uh, the, the, the giant Goliath. And then he helped me escape from the murderous clutches of King Saul. And, and now here I sit, resting from all my enemies, anointed as the king of Israel. How good God has been. How good has God been in your life? What has God been doing in your life? I've said it before and I'll say it again this morning. I hope you have an attitude of gratitude. I hope you're not always focusing on all the negative stuff of life, but I hope that you will take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, and you will choose to have control over your thoughts, and you will choose to have an attitude of thankfulness and appreciation to God. And one of the ways that I do that is every single morning when I get before the Lord, I go back 24 hours, and very slowly in my quiet time, I thank God for everything he did the previous day. I just did it this morning for yesterday. And God will so be blessed when we stop complaining and griping and we start having this attitude of gratitude. But anyway, David was so happy. He was so blessed. And just prior to chapter 7, he was so honored because he got to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem with great celebration. And so you remember the Ark of the Covenant from way back in the time of Moses? The Ark of the Covenant, the box that the Ten Commandments uh, were located in with the, the, the angels whose wings touched and the, the presence of God there um, under the Old Covenant. And so David got to bring in that Ark to Jerusalem. And David and all Israel, listen to this, it says in the Bible that they played music on all kinds of instruments. 
Right there in 2 Samuel, I think it's chapter 6. All the house of Israel and David played music on all types of instruments. I don't understand churches, uh, some churches, that they don't allow any instruments at all in the worship of God. And yet the Bible is so clear that we should sing a new song to the Lord and that we should worship him with all kinds of instruments. And so David brought in the ark, and if you remember, he danced before the Lord with all his might. He was not embarrassed of Jesus. He was not ashamed to be looking like a fool in the worship of God. And yet some of us still won't even raise our hands to the Lord. David was so excited that the Ark of the Covenant was now coming into Jerusalem, but he wasn't very thrilled about what the Ark was in. You see, David lived in a big, beautiful palace that had been built for him and his family, but the Ark was in a tent. David, as he's enjoying this time of peace and prosperity and contemplating about how good God had been in his life, he begins to look around and he begins to think, man, I'm living in this big, beautiful house of cedar and that the ark is outside in a tent. David started feeling guilty. And so a little Bible history here, since the time of Moses, the ark had dwelt in a tabernacle, okay? And so if you're new to the Bible, 1000 BC or so is the time of David. You go back in history, 500 or so years, and you arrive at Moses, and then you go back another four or 500 years, and you arrive at Abraham. And so David here in 1000 BC, he understands that for 500 years or so, the ark has been contained in a tent inside of a tabernacle, all through uh, the wilderness wanderings, all through the period of the judges, all through the reign of King Saul, the ark has been contained inside of the tabernacle. So now David's king king of Israel, he wants that to change. So he believed the ark needed a better abode. It needed more than a tent. The ark needed a temple. David thought, as he's sitting on his throne, the ark needs a glorious temple. So because he was determined to make this change, he calls in Nathan the prophet to bounce his idea off of the man of God. By the way, if you're thinking about making a change, make sure you spend time in prayer and make sure you bounce your ideas off of men and women of God before you make those decisions. That's what David did, and Nathan now, Nathan kind of messes up. He doesn't really spend any time in prayer. He just tells David, go for it. Build the temple. And so now, with that background, we pick it up in 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. The king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, But the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Verse four, but, okay, that's what happens when we make decisions too hasty without praying. It happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, 
Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Whether I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? <laughs> Can you imagine? I think God's kind of chuckling there. He, he lives in the third heavens. He's surrounded by glory and millions of angels that worship his name. He never asks for a house of cedar on the earth. He says, verse 8, Now therefore, thus, Nathan, you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut you off. I'm sorry, I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, and they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. How many of you guys are looking forward to that day? When Israel is in the land, no longer oppressed from anybody. Prophecy of the millennial kingdom, we gotta keep going. Verse 11, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. And here it is. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you, David, <laughs> a house. And so in the parallel passage of 1 Chronicles chapter 28, God told David, that he would not allow David to build the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 28, God gave David the reason why. Because David, you are a man of war. David, your hands have shed a lot of blood in battle. But the Lord was still touched by David's desire to build a house for his name. And so God being touched by David's Willingness to honor the Lord, again, says at the end of verse 11, check it out, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And so God is saying, in essence, David, so you want to build me a, a, a temple? David, so you want to build me a house? Well, actually, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, and it's not going to be made of cedar wood. So what kind of house is God talking about? Look at verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your, what's the word? Your seed, very important, we'll come back to it. After you, who will come from your body, and I will, everybody say, I will, that's a promise of God, cannot be revoked. It is unconditional. And I will establish his kingdom. So the Lord said to David, David, son, when, when your time on earth has ended, how many of you guys know that one day our time on earth is gonna end? 
Therefore, we should count our days and we should be wise not to live for ourselves, but to live for the Lord. And so when your days are ended, David, I'm going to set up your seed. The word seed is synonymous with descendants. And so David, from your seed, from your descendants, I will set up a monarchy of kings. Now, after David died, who was his son that succeeded him? What was his name? Solomon. And so now speaking of Solomon, the Lord says, just the first part of verse 13, check it out. He, not you, David, he shall build a house for my name. And so after David married Bathsheba, made an honest woman out of her. You remember the whole affair he had with Bathsheba and Bathsheba got pregnant and the Lord stepped in and and judgment came and the baby that was conceived by the affair uh, died, right? Well, after that, David married Bathsheba. Bathsheba got pregnant again and she gave birth to Solomon. Solomon reigned over Israel for 40 years. And you got to understand this, that under Solomon's reign, Israel reached its pinnacle of power and glory. We think about the great kingdoms in the history of the world. We think about Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and the Medo-Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, right? Well, sometimes we forget Israel once was the premier power on the face of the earth. Right around 1000 BC, it was the golden age of Israel, and Solomon sat on that throne. In his youth, Solomon asked God for great wisdom because he knew I'm young, I'm green, I can't rule this kingdom on my own, I need help, God give me wisdom. You guys remember what God did? He made Solomon the wisest man on the face of the earth. Are you praying for wisdom in your life? See, God's got a plan for your life, but you'll never fulfill his plan unless you have some wisdom And you have not because you asked not. Solomon didn't get any wisdom until he asked for wisdom. And so Solomon asks for wisdom, and God makes him the wisest man on the face of the earth. But not only that, God said, I'm going to throw this in too. And God made Solomon extremely wealthy. And Solomon's fame spread way past the borders of Israel. So people came from all over the known world to come and to, to see the the beauty and the riches of Solomon's kingdom of Israel and also to hear Solomon's wisdom and all his proverbs. People like the queen of Sheba who traveled a really far way in order to hear Solomon's wisdom and to see the beauty of his kingdom. And she was blown away and everybody was blown away by what they saw. And so Solomon, God used Solomon to write at least three books that now have been included in the canon of your scriptures. Uh, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Song of Solomon, one of the greatest love stories ever written. And so Solomon did all this good, and yet he had one fatal flaw. Does anybody know what Solomon's fatal flaw was? Women. Billy Graham used to say three things that bring down men of God, the gold, the glory, and the girls. And so Solomon was brought down by women. The Bible says that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What a headache, right? Man. 
I mean, good night. I can't imagine a thousand women running around, right? 700 wives and 300 concubines. And by the way, back in Deuteronomy, God, there's a prophecy in there about, about how you, you know, don't take on all these wives because they'll turn your heart away. Well, that's exactly, God's word, God's word's perfect. It's always fulfilled. And so exactly what God warned not to do way back in 1500 B.C., Solomon did around 1000 B.C. He began to take all these women, foreign women who worshiped other gods, and these women turned his heart away from the true God and to idols. Be careful who you date. Be careful who you get, allow to put a ring on your finger. And before you say, I do, make sure you're equally yoked with a man or a woman who loves Jesus Christ just as much as you do. And so, his fatal flaw, women, they turned his heart, and God judged Solomon, and here's what God did. He allowed the united kingdom of Israel and Judah to be split under the rule of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And so Solomon started so well, but he ended so poorly. By the way, just because you started well in your Christian walk doesn't mean, you'll, doesn't mean you'll end well. It's a daily decision to put Christ first and to give your heart to him and to follow him with everything you got. A daily decision. Otherwise, you will go off into la-la land. I mean, every single day, you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. If, how many of you guys want to get to the end of your, of your days and take your last breath knowing that you weren't perfect, but man, you lived as a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ? Is that your goal in life? Is that what you want to do? Well, Solomon didn't. So you could be the wisest man in the world and still not end well. So God judged Solomon. Now, in spite of the sins of his Later years, Solomon's greatest achievement was accomplished in his earlier years. He built a glorious temple. And so Solomon fulfilled what God said he would do right there in the first part of verse 13. Look at it again. Speaking of Solomon, God says, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And so not David, but Solomon did exactly what was prophesied through Nathan to David. Solomon built the temple. Big, beautiful, enormous structure. So the temple was built, and the temple stood for some 400 years. Okay, how old are we as Americans? Or how old is our nation? 200 and how many years? I always forget. Whatever it is, okay? Um, you can do the math, 1776 till now. But, you know, we're just a blip on the historical map. The, the temple of Solomon stood for over 400 years. From the time of Solomon all the way until the Babylonian captivity and when the Babylonians destroyed it around 587 B.C. And so, verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And here it is. I will, please say I will again. Establish the throne of his kingdom. How long? Forever. All right, we just went way past the rule of Solomon. And this promise just extended into eternity. In one verse, verse 13, we have just gone from a temporal kingdom to an eternal kingdom. 
So I got a lot more to say about the eternal nature of God's promise in a moment. But first, God's got a little bit more to say about Solomon. Look at verse 14. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the son of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from who? Saul, whom I removed, David, before you. By the way, God removed Saul. David didn't remove Saul. David honored and respected the king even when he was being dishonored and disrespected. And David committed that difficult situation to God, and God took care of it. See, right now, some of you are facing a difficult situation, and you want to take matters into your own hands, and you want to control the situation. You got to be like David. You got to step back, and you got to let God remove that problem. God will do for you just what he did for David. David, I removed Saul, and I put you on this throne, and I anointed you king over Israel and over Judah. Now, speaking of Solomon, God said, if he sins, I'm going to chasten him with the rod of men. And again, we know from the story of Solomon that in his later years, he sinned greatly. So what did God do? God chastened him greatly. But God, have you noticed this? Those of you who read through your Bibles and you know the background of these stories, did you notice that God never took his mercy from Solomon like he did from Saul, the first king of Israel? By the way, it's a fulfillment of another prophecy. Way back now, 1000 BC, Solomon, David. 1500 BC, Moses. 2000 or so BC, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. You remember when Jacob was blessing his 12 sons, who would later on be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel? Do you remember the prophecy that Jacob gave over his son Judah? In Genesis 49.10, he said, the scepter will not depart from Judah. What tribe was Saul from? Anybody know? Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He had no right ever sitting on the throne of Israel. The scepter will not depart from Judah. What tribe was David from? The tribe of Judah. What tribe was Solomon from? The tribe of and yet God never took his mercy from Solomon like he took it away from Saul. And so look at verse 16 now. Here it is. The greatest promise, or one of the greatest promises God ever made to anybody. Verse 16. David, your house and your kingdom shall be established, how long? Forever before you. Your throne shall be established, how long? forever. Now, the house that David spoke of, I'm sorry, that God spoke of here was David's family tree, his dynasty. Now, you know, in America, 2016, when we think of dynasties, we think of sports teams. All right, we think of the 1972 Dolphins who went 17-0 and and won a Super Bowl. What a dynasty. You know, we think of uh, uh, the, the, the Pittsburgh Steelers from the 1970s who won four Super Bowl rings. We think of the San Francisco 49ers in the 80s who won four Super Bowl rings. We think of the Dallas Cowboys in the early 90s who won three Super Bowl rings in four seasons. And then we think about the team that I hate, the New England Patriots. Ugh. Why am I talking about the New England Patriots on Sunday? And in the first part of, the, of our new millennium, you know, they, they win three Super Bowls. They won another one in 2015, right? And so 
We think of sports teams. But here's what you got to understand. All those teams, their dynasties only made a temporary impact. The dynasty that God promised to David and his descendants is going to make an eternal impact. And yet we're so focused on sports and we're so excited about what team wins on Sunday. And we go to 2 Samuel 7, it's like, what are we doing? We're in the flesh. That's the problem, ladies and gentlemen. We need to be in the spirit and not in the flesh. If we walked in the spirit instead of in the flesh, we wouldn't be so excited about temporal things and so bored to death about eternal things. That's the problem in the church. If we actually read through our Bibles and we knew the word of God and we, we could get excited that the fact of the matter is that God promised David that his throne will endure forever and that it's going to impact us forever and ever and ever. And a million years from now, we're not going to care about the 1972 Dolphins or Troy Aikman and the 1992 Dallas Cowboys, all we're going to be consumed with is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords from the tribe of Judah, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And that's the truth. And so God promised David that a king from his line will rule forever. It's called the Davidic Covenant. So what is the Davidic Covenant? It's an unconditional promise that one of David's descendants would do what? Reign forever. So notice that God's promise was unconditional. You see that? What does that mean? That means it's not conditioned upon, it doesn't depend upon David's obedience. How many of you guys are happy about that? It's not dependent upon Solomon's obedience. The Davidic covenant, the promise that God made to David, is not dependent on any of the monarchy of kings that came from David and Solomon and their obedience. No, it's unconditional. And so as we study history, here's what we find out, that David's descendants ruled for over four centuries in the history of the world and in the history of your Bible, over 400 years, David descendants ruled until the time of the Babylonian captivity. But here's the problem. How many of you guys have ever read Kings and Chronicles? Let me see your hands if you read through those books. David and Solomon's descendants were a bunch of sinners. Do you notice that as you read through? I mean, some of them were better than others, but they were all sinners. But what's the... The beauty of the Davidic covenant is that it doesn't depend on man's obedience. It depends on God's faithfulness. And so therefore, we can be sure of this, that one day there will be a king who's going to come. And he's going to reign over Israel. He's going to reign over the world forever and ever. So who is that king going to be? Well, we're done in 2 Samuel 7. Turn right, go a thousand years to your New Testament Luke chapter 1 now. Luke chapter 1. God has been silent for about 400 years, and he's breaking his silence through an angel named Gabriel. And he says in verse 26, 
Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a, what's the word? Virgin. So sad, so many churches deny the virgin birth. There it is in black and white. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of who? See how how important that is? The virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name, who? And so speaking of Jesus, I love verses 32 and 33. He will be great, and will be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, who? There it is. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Right now, the song that we just sang, he shall reign forevermore, is going through my head. And and then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And I've never never had sex. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. She's six months along. And this is now the sixth month of her, uh, for her who was childbearing, for with God nothing will be impossible. Even your elderly relative, Elizabeth, like Sarah of old, is pregnant. You see, Mary, God can do whatever he wants to do. Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now look back at verse 30. The angel said to her, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son. And his name will be Jesus, and he's going to be great. He's going to be called the son of the highest. God's going to give him the throne of David. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. So let's pick those part those verses apart with the time we have left here concerning her son. Gabriel said, "He will be great." I shared this like 4 3 4 years ago, but in his book um, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey uh, told a really interesting story about Richard Nixon and Billy Graham. You see, when the Apollo 11 astronauts in 1969 landed on the moon, first time man ever walked on the moon, and yes, it actually did happen. It wasn't produced in Hollywood. For you conspiracy theorists, we actually walked on the moon, okay? But in 1969, when Apollo 11 astronauts walked on the moon, Richard Nixon, the president, he was so excited and, and so impressed that he literally said, quote, this is the greatest day since creation. Come on, give me a break, President. Like, can you see Nixon doing that? This is the greatest day. 
since creation, right? And thank God for Billy Graham. So Billy Graham hears this stupid comment. And Billy Graham says, Mr. President, you forgot something. You forgot the greatest day was the day Jesus Christ was born. Billy Graham spoke it out publicly. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't ashamed. And so the greatest day since creation was not when the Apollo 11 astronauts walked on the moon. It it wasn't any notable day in history. The greatest day was the day Jesus Christ was born. And an equal day, an equal significance is the day that Jesus Christ walked out of a tomb victorious over sin and death. That's the greatest day. So let's talk about it. Let's be open about it around the break room table, across the fence to our neighbors, in the supermarket, with our relatives, on Facebook. Why are we trying to keep this quiet? It's the greatest day of history, the day that Messiah was born. We're going to celebrate the greatest day in the spring when he rises from the dead. Gabriel said he's going to be great. He's going to be great. Has, listen, has any historical figure even come close in terms of greatness to Jesus Christ? No. And the world knows this. You're not telling them anything new. Dailymail.com, three years ago, listed the 10 most significant people in history. Look who's at the top of their list. Jesus. Then you have all these other guys, you know, whose opinion, what order they come in. Um, but anyway... Jesus is at the top of the list. And so believers and unbelievers alike, they understand that Jesus is the greatest person who has ever lived. Saved or unsaved, regenerate or unregenerate. And by the way, this book is still the number one bestseller in the world. Okay? So he shall be great. And concerning her son, Gabriel said, he shall be called the son of the highest. And so Jesus was not just the son of Mary. He was and is the son of God. Look again. I know I use it all the time, but I'm drilling this in. Look again what John says in his gospel. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word in the original Greek was God. Only one false translation ever changes the Greek. It's a translation of those people who knock on your door every Saturday. The New World Translation. And by the way, the, the, the people that put together their translation weren't even Greek scholars. Please go back and study that. They say, was a God, little g, blasphemy. We have no time to put up with that. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. Check it out. In the beginning, at the time of creation, when time began, was the word. He was already existing at the time of creation. You see that? And he was with God, and he was God. Was. And so before time began, the word existed. Who's the word? What's his name? Okay, so like we've done a million times in the past, let's exchange the name Jesus for word. And I do this because we get, you know, 20, 30 visitors every weekend who've never heard this before in their life. And so in the beginning was Jesus. 
Okay, so when I point at you, you say Jesus. You ready? In the beginning was Jesus. and Jesus. was with God and Jesus. was God. That's the truth of the gospel. He existed before time began. He was already existing, not as Michael the archangel, a created being, but as the eternal God. Concerning her son, Gabriel also said, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And for some of you, this is brand new truth, but this is the fulfillment of the first half of our study today, right there. Fulfilled from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so now we're getting into Jesus' genealogy. The descendants of David, okay, when you look at the genealogy of Jesus, okay, if you've read through the New Testament, you know that Matthew has this long genealogy, and then you know that Luke has this long genealogy. Have you ever read those genealogies, yes or no? Okay, and so in Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus is traced from David through Solomon, all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' adopted stepfather, showing his legal right to reign. This is not a big deal for Gentiles. It's a big deal for Jews. He's got, the Messiah's got to be the son of David. So when you're talking about his adopted stepfather, Jesus is the son of David. He fulfills 2 Samuel 7. And when you're talking about Luke's genealogy, his genealogy goes from David through another son of David, Nathan, all the way down to Mary, Jesus' biological mother. So Matthew shows Jesus' legal right to reign. Luke shows Jesus' biological right to reign. Either way you look at it, Jesus is the son of David. Concerning her son, Gabriel also said this to Mary. He's going to reign over the house of Jacob for how long? You see that? And so we are so excited. I think about David bringing in the ark into Jerusalem. He's so excited. He's dancing, takes off some of his clothes, whirling around, singing and shouting. By the way, his wife, McCall, the Pharisee that she was, looked out her window and saw this display, and she got all offended. And she rebuked her husband for worshiping God with all of his might. And then the Bible says, McCall never had a baby after that. And so I think about David and how excited he was to bring in the ark the symbol, the footstool of the presence of God in the old covenant. And here we are in the new covenant. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not ashamed or embarrassed to say, I am so excited that Jesus is gonna come back and he's gonna rule over the house of Jacob forever to this earth. He's coming back. And so all the pain, all the heartache, all the turmoil, all the murder, all the rape, all the stealing, all the junk that we put up with every single day of our lives will one day be eradicated forever because Christ the King is coming. And he's going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob. What's another word for Jacob? Help me out. Go ahead. Israel. Israel. God has not forgotten his promise to Israel. They are still very much part of his eternal plan. 
God has a plan for Israel, and the church has not replaced Israel. We are not amillennialists. We do not believe David's throne is the throne that Jesus sits on in heaven. We do not believe that the millennium is some symbolic thing of Jesus' reign right now over the universe. Hogwash! The millennium is a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, who's going to come and rule and reign literally on this planet, not just in heaven. And so right now, Israel is blind in part until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. But one day, the son of David, Jesus Christ, is going to return, and at that time, all Israel, yes, the nation of Israel over there that we read about in the news, the Jews, them, I don't know why this perturbs people so much. There's a, a spirit of anti-Semitism around this planet. And, and I've, I've received the criticisms from people. I had one person years ago, Pastor Lee witnessed this, who I spoke about Jesus being the son of David and reigning over Israel. And, and she came out into the courtyard and fell down at my feet, so upset that I would exalt the Jews in her mind. So many people have this anti-Semitic mentality. You look what happened in the 30s and in the 40s. You look what's happening today in the growing anti-Semitism. This is why I always say, you know, thank, you know our, our, our current president-elect has his faults. I know that. But thank God he's pro-Israel. Thank God for that. And so here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to come back, and all Israel will be saved. Say, where do you get that from? The Bible. You should read it. It's really good. Look at what it says. And so how much of Israel? Will be what? As it is written. When's this going to happen? The deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so Jesus is going to come back during the battle of Armageddon, and Israel, on the defensive, is going to look up, and they're going to see the wounds, Zechariah, in his hands, in his feet, and they're going to mourn. It's a morning of repentance. Oh, Jesus was our Messiah all along. And at that point, all Israel will be saved. He's coming back, and he's not going to just reign over Israel. He's going to reign over the entire world. After the seventh trumpet in the book of Revelation, can't wait for January 8th. After that seventh trumpet, loud voices in heaven, is, they're going to proclaim this truth. Here's your last verse for today. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Are you ready for that reign? Because we don't know the day or the hour. It could be today, it could be next week, it could be next year, it could be 10 years from now, we don't know. I won't set dates, but I will rest on the promise that just like he came the first time, in his first advent, he will come again. And he's going to reign over the entire world.
One of the greatest gifts God can give His children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com. Click on Home, then Knowing Christ.